The following is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters, two microphones, and one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Frank, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. Well, we had a good bye week as far as football goes. Back to ETSU Grand Art action this week. ETSU and Samford. We'll be breaking down that game coming up on Thursdays. We'll get you set for the weekend as ETSU, the third game in the Central Time Zone. The first three road games, the first four games they play. And all the road trips that are a little bit lengthy are out of the way. But we will have pregame show coverage 1130 Saturday, 1 o'clock kick as far as football goes. A lot of Southern Conference action from a week to go to talk about because there were three league games. Uh, Keith Mariano, we'll talk about pick six. I'm okay if we don't. We can move on. Um, I mean, I'm okay if we don't, but also I think I want to. I'm sure, blah, 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 you do. Uh, I will say this. So, you know, for you, you weren't. I, I did not. I get a chance to be family guy for the weekend. And the Saturday outback in Oak Ridge where I am yelling at the phone and entrenched into the five-setter ETSU Furman volleyball to the point where me, it's just me and one of the, the, those twins there, James, for a minute, and then Red got kind of sucked into mine and James uh, yelling at the, the phone and to have the guy next to me, hey, what game are you watching? And I just kind of grinned because I was like, oh, this could be awful. Because this was like, I don't know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, something like that. So, you know, Outback's got the, the UT – San Antonio game on. It's got Oregon getting uh, lambasted in Colorado. Yeah. It's got Alabama, Ole Miss, and probably another game on. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm watching ETSU Furman. I can tell, you know, the person's like, oh. oh Dude, what? Okay. And then I waited for it, and he was like, uh, so they're playing football? And I was like, oh, no. No, we're watching volleyball. And then you should have seen the, the mind blow uh, for that cat. He was just like, oh. So I had to, like, turn my phone and show him, like, no, no, we're, we're really watching volleyball here. Uh, and, and at that time when he asked, it was in the fourth set, which ended up uh, going to a couple extra points, right, one by two. But still, uh, I mean, it was a solid um, match, I guess, for if you had no dog in the fight to watch. You know, you get a five-setter, usually that plays into it. But ETSU, I mean, the first two didn't, didn't you know, like, and that, that weird, and I know the intermission isn't what it used to be, but I used to hate. Well, well it used to be it used to be like fifteen minutes. Yeah, it? It was like a, it was like it a was basketball halftime. It was a long. And then they cut it down to ten, and now I think it's down to five. Yes, correct. It was fifteen originally. Um, then it was down to ten, and now like the last two years, I think it's been five minutes or whatever they've tried to shorten that up. Eventually, hopefully, they'll get it down to three minutes, which is what it is between sets normally, and we can just roll. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, and I think it, this is the advantage. I bet if you did a, a lot of study. How many teams maybe dropped the first couple sets, especially when you took that long layover? It was kind of a running joke. It was like, well, whoever's got beat a couple's got a chance to come right back here. And it would be like the kiss of death because you would see that because it was like the momentum would be gone. So if you, I guess it's if you win the two, you'd rather just roll through it and not have any any intermission, whether it's, you know, the extra two minutes or not. You'd rather just continue to go. But right. it is amazing. Or it just feels that way. There may be no statistical. I just, yeah, I, I, I've never understood that. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, 
some coaches probably love it and some coaches probably hate it. I think that's why it's been changed so much is that there's been some feedback from the, ball, the sport itself, like, hey, we don't need this much time. You know, we don't like having this much time between sets. We really like you know, maybe a little, a little shorter intermission and then we can roll. And I would love to have it be just one set, one set, one set, what bang, 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 and get it done. Um, but I'm fine with the way it is. We'll roll with how it is. And ETSU uh, probably would have liked to have just rolled straight into the third set, I think, given the way that that played out. And they are still searching for their first win of the year. Um, yeah, I cannot, I cannot uh, comment on you watching volleyball in an outback, but at the same time, <laughs> Um, You've been in my shoes, though. You've watched a random game, maybe, where the rest of the I watched. I watched at the end of ETSU VMI men's hoops last year with Mike Ezekiel in an outback in Macon, Georgia, because we were on the road getting ready for Mercer uh, women's hoops, which they went out and just stomped Mercer the following day. But we watched that game in, uh, in an outback, and that's about the extent of what I've done in restaurants watching sporting events. Um, I've never watched volleyball in a restaurant. But good on you. Uh, good for supporting the teams, and hopefully you got the chance on Sunday to watch women's soccer in a restaurant as well because I thought they shook off kind of a rusty first half and played great in the second 45 minutes and put away VMI. Kedets made them earn it. Kedets have made everybody earn it this year, but a 2-0 win is a good result. Bucks are 1-0-1. and they are uh, sitting second in the SoCon standings after the first weekend of play. Chattanooga is their next opponent. They are 2-0, and and that game is played here this year. So should be a fun one on Thursday night. Well, that's what I was going to say for, you know, we, we may touch a, a little bit Thursday, although we'll be a little more football-centric uh, for that show. You're looking at a good weekend uh, for me if you're a Buck fan because you can watch women's soccer versus chat on Thursday and volleyball versus chat Friday. So you get a couple of back-to-backers, and I know uh, the unfortunate scheduling conflict sometimes you get with multi-sports in the same. Volleyball plays UNCG right. on campus. Actually, I believe it's at the exact same time. Both, both are at 6 o'clock, and they've had to move the normally, and you know I'm not asked to leave, but a lot of times it has to deal with something else going on on campus for somebody else. So instead of playing the Friday-Saturday, Volleyball, they're playing Thursday, Friday, which pushes that Greensboro game that you just mentioned, UNCG, up to the Thursday against Chattanooga. Right. It, to me, you get Chattanooga soccer Thursday, which is a solid you know matchup of top teams, but then you get ETSU-Chattanooga volleyball Friday, so you don't get cheated in any of your ETSU-Chattanooga mm-hmm. matchups if you're interested in the ability to not – sorry, am interested in I, I think there's more animosity in, e, in, in women's soccer between ETSU and Furman than there is between ETSU and Chattanooga, but anytime those two teams are on the field against each other in any sport, it's going to be intense. I think it just comes down to what I don't like. <laughs> Fair. Fair Chattanooga, enough. that's what I go. And in men's soccer, I'm going to leave them out. They're going to play at home on Saturday, uh, 7 o'clock. They host Wofford. Wofford, and we'll have that game on ESPN Plus as well. Um, should be uh, an interesting one. Men's soccer plays Virginia tonight. First ever meeting with the Wahoos, and we'll see how it goes because uh, if they win this one, and Virginia's down a little bit this year, if they win this one on the road, okay, you've got the long layoff, you come out, you, you hit the gas, you beat a good AC, well, you beat an ACC team on the road, 
for the first time since 2016. What does that do for you? Does that galvanize you going into conference play? I think that's what this team needs is a big game that they have to get up for to go on the road and play in order to get them ready for SOCON. This just that's been a tough team to read. You know, they've they've had a tough time putting it all together for ninety minutes this year. I think there's lots of talent there, um, but it's just been a matter of consistency. And sometimes ironing those wrinkles out takes some time, and if you don't have it all put together in soccer, then you can find yourself in a weird place in terms of results that does not reflect the talent on your roster. level not very much because like eight of the 11 valley teams i think were on a bye so i didn't get to watch that much football from that perspective but i did get to watch montana state montana state was the top team playing they were in the limelight and holy shnikes did they take it to weaver state on saturday night in ogden i mean that was a beat down 40 rip it ended up. We thought that might be a, a, a little more competitive game than that, but Montana State has clearly turned a corner in my mind. This is a team that is now exactly what they wanted to be. Really, when they hired Jeff Choate, let alone Brent Vegan, this is the team that they, they wanted to be. This is a team that is a serious contender for the national championship. And I think we've got three real title contenders this year. When you play a team that's pretty good in South Dakota State, number one team in the country, you play them close, and then you go on the road and you just beat the bejesus out of a top 15 team at their place. That You're, you're legit. I, I think it's clear now Montana State is legit. And any questions that I had about them, especially doing that without their starting quarterback, um, they, they put that to bed pretty definitively. Since we talk about top 25 in this segment and not just SoCon. SoCon Sickos game, though. SoCon Sickos. VMI. The the Sickos choice. I think that's that, that's that's what they should really lean to. They're, they're, they're the choice of the Sickos. They score, or they uh, had a 17-7 lead on Wofford with 4.09 left in the third quarter and held on to win it. 17-14. So Colin Ironside, excuse me, did play in the game. He did. 8 of 10 passing, but what threw me off was when I saw on Twitter uh, BMI posted Hunter Rice with a touchdown pass. And yeah. I had to take like a double take. <laughs> yeah. Play. Hunter Rice yeah, touchdown buddy. pass. So Let's go. Drawing me in, but it was the old uh, direct snap jump pass deal for Hunter Rice, which oh, makes more sense. Yeah. 
But I was sitting there, and I was like, Hunter Rice, what can he do? He threw a touchdown pass. And I'm like, uh, I mean, I, I was thinking, when we got to the point where VMI, who had had some injuries at quarterback, although Ironside, um, I didn't know uh, until a little bit before we started recording this, where I started watching some of that contest, because I watched the other two games all the way through. And like most, like I said, I will watch this through mm-hmm. and, and kind of see how it plays out, especially when it's league opponent versus league opponent. And Hunter Rice, you know, I, I think is, you know, smartly, they had they wanted to throw the football early at BMI if you look at some of the numbers, you know, 25, 30 pass attempts a game. Hunter Rice is probably their best uh, weapon at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no offense to Chance Knox and a few other guys they got receiving the football, but he's by far the best. So I think they're just going to, you know, make him the bell cow. He had 27 carries and Rashad Raymond at 16, so 51 totes all the way uh, combined as opposed to 12 pass attempts. Um, but, you know, BMI able to squeak out a win, give uh, Wofford a lot of credit. They went with uh, Seeley as a quarterback. You know, mm-hmm. I think we talked about that. Me and you were probably more off-air than on-air. Just they needed more uh, out of Corston and uh, apparently just made a decision to make a change. Ron Ingram, 18 carries, 136 yards, a, a solid number, uh, including he busted an 83-yard touchdown run that got him to a three-point deficit, but BMI in the last seven, eight minutes was able to hang on, and a, a nice win uh, for Coach Rocco and the key that's to pick up a home victory 17-14. Well, you think about this uh, and just how costly the turnovers were for Wofford. They fumbled twice in the third quarter. Uh, one, They fumbled at the BMI 14. Going, I mean, they're going in. They're, they fumbled in the red zone, couldn't get it done. They fumbled then at their own nine. VMI couldn't do anything with it on uh, three downs and goal, and so they, they elected to kick a field goal, but that field goal was the difference in the football game. So um, you really put – and then you get an interception at VMI's 14, or rather VMI's uh, 25, and you gain one yard and turn it over on downs with a chance to win the football game, essentially. Well, if you look at some of the other numbers, too, Wofford outgained BMI 343 yards to 216. Yeah. More plays, more yardage. I mean, everything kind of points. The one thing that was Wofford was not very good at, 0 of 10 on third down, 1 of 2 on fourth down, but they were 0 of 10 on third down. Mm -hmm. And 1 for 3 in red zone. I just this team this team still got a lot to figure out. I, I I don't think, I mean the defensive guys in particular shouldn't have anything to hang their head about uh, because I think their defense has played pretty good for most of the year, but offensively they're just a mess. I, they they have got so much work to do. It starts with the quarterback, but you really got to put all the pieces together uh, in that that eleven in order to get something going. I mean. They're 0-4 now, and you, you, you lose 45-7 to Pitt, and everybody's like, ah, yeah, sure, fine. Offense looked bad. Defense battled. Defense gives up points because the offense can't stay on the field. That, that happens. You lose 23-6 to William & Mary. Not a great look, but still William & Mary shown some things defensively. They look like they might be okay. You only score 20 on Presbyterian, and alarm bells start going off. And the defense has reined itself in. They still only gave up 23. And this week, they only gave up 17, and you still lose. 
that's not on the defense. Like, the offense has got to get it together. And Sean Watson told me at media day we still haven't figured out quarterback. I think that's something that will help, but I don't know that that's their only issue. Well, they're dead last in penalties. They've got 31 penalties. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. They had 11 in the game against VMI. So, I mean, a lot of penalties. Uh, Turnover margin is not good. And, you know, offensive numbers, and, you know, they're 5-7 in the red zone. But, again, one of three in that contest. Had plenty of opportunities in that game if you look at it. They're also dead last in the league in time of possession, which is hard to do when Sanford's in your league. When Sanford basically – Prides itself on being last. How about how about this? How about this? Speaking of the Bulldogs, and we'll we'll get to them in a little bit in in the Chattanooga game. Samford, Wofford, ETSU, and the Citadel. What do they all have in common in football this season? Say it again. Samford, Wofford, Mm -hmm. ETSU, and the Citadel all have one thing in common this season. What is it? Uh, Bad on third downs. None of them have a win against a Division One opponent. Oh. And probably bad on third downs. Uh, they're all probably pretty good. Actually, Sanford pretty good. The Citadel, pretty Citadel is one of the worst teams in the country at third down. I think they may actually be last. Uh, no? No, no. It's, uh, ETSU is ETSU is last. Next to last is the Citadel. Uh, actually, Citadel's higher. It's Wofford. It's ETSU Wofford. The Citadel actually had some conversions last week. So they're, I think they're up to like seven conversions now. Still, if you go to that like third page of the third down, I think they're they're right in there. But I, I almost think it's ETSU Wofford, and then Citadel's a, a few spots above them. Um, if my memory's right, I could be incorrect. Here. No, you're right. ETSU is 122 out of 122, and then Wofford is 121. The Citadel is 108. Yeah, but they actually had some conversions last game. So you get this because they they were actually next to last with ETSU in the previous week. Which was, yeah. But the 0 for 10 for Wofford didn't help. And VMI is 100, so that's great. It's not, it's it's not, not good great. for the for the for the conference. The only thing I can say about VMI um, is a positive. They, they lead the league in uh, you know least yards given up, giving up 355 yards per contest. Well, that's not bad. So you know they got that going for them. Citadel on the opposite end. That's but now, now Danny Rocco's got more wins than they had last season with a team that is in, immensely freshman heavy, and he's got a conference win. I feel like this is a potential building moment. I won't call it a turning point, but I think this is something that when you look back on this team, if they're four, if, if VMI goes four and seven, how much does that defy the expectations you had for them at the beginning of the year? What did you expect VMI to do at the beginning of the year? One. One and ten? One and ten. They, they had a glorious year. Three and, three and eight. Yeah. If they go four and seven. Oh, it's huge. huge that, I, I feel like that's an achievement for that team in that situation. Now, objectively, is it good? No. But relatively, and relative is important in college football, given the expectations placed upon the program, given some of the handicaps that the program has to deal with because they are not, they don't take transfers. And in a transfer environment, that is a, a that's something that, that holds you back. You're essentially building a team with one hand tied behind your back. And um, I think that is a situation where you look at four and seven and you say, hey, good job. Now we'll see what you do next year. The expectations go up next year. Next year, maybe it's six and five because you're going to bring a lot of those guys back, ideally. But 
If you go four and seven, hey, great job, Danny Rocco. So his quote was, I think it's really big for the program, our team, our season. We needed to break through, and we did. Yeah, So I agree. I, I agree with him. I do. I, I think, you know, he's not overhyping anything. They've been through a lot. They know it would be kind of a tough road to go, and they had an opportunity at home to do so and was able to pick up a win. Sitting there one and zero in league play. I mean, they're, they're four weeks in and they're five hundred, and they had a shot at Bucknell at their place. Um, that's, that's that's a lot better than I thought they would be, to be honest. Um, but VMI with the win over Wofford, uh, Furman pounded Mercer. I don't think that shocks any of us. My question, I guess, would be is. Does this change the way you view either of these teams compared to coming in? Because you and I both felt like Mercer had a question mark in Carter Peavy, a quarterback. And, you know, I've been a little bit anxious to have seen Devron Harper cough up the football a few times. Now, sometimes Mercer's gotten back on it, but sometimes they haven't. And that's not a great sign for your explosive playmaker receiver to have the fumble bug. Um, I look at Mercer, though, now probably a little bit I, I look at them a little bit more concerned maybe than I was at the beginning of the year because I don't think they've gotten a whole lot better I don't think you know Moorhead State didn't show me much playing Ole Miss and you're not going to learn a whole lot um, and North Alabama was a rock fight that should not have been a rock fight I mean they really should have won that game I think a little more decisively than what seventeen to seven. I'd love to see them put up a few more points in that situation, but they didn't. And that's when we kind of wondered: Is this team going to have the goods offensively? And I think now we can we can say with a measure of confidence they don't have the goods offensively in twenty twenty three. No, and Harper fumbled again, by the way, in the, in the Furman game. Of course, so you, did. you were kind of on that. He had, I think he had two, but they fell back on one. They got back on one. Yeah, and, you know, again, teams are trying to do what they can to take him away. Still averaging 158 yards per game. But Carter Peavy, I think it's the difference. You know, Fred Payton did a lot of extra things that in the throwing game with his legs, decision-making, just obviously there's a reason why he beat Carter Peavy out beforehand. Peavy, who was a starter, then had to sit for a couple years behind Fred Payton. Now we're back kind of in the saddle, and Mercer, early in that game, was able to move the football, but didn't capitalize on anything, and then there was the blocked punt, Mercer blocked the punt, and there was like a defensive holding or some call that took it away, and then Furman was able to get a first down out of it, and that extended the drive and led to points, and I think that was a huge turning point, because Mercer would have had the ball inside Furman territory, I think they you know, probably had something going, but that was a, an interesting Kind of first half, a little, little bit of back and forth to the penalty because, you know, it's 10 nothing. Then all of a sudden it escalated quickly, right? So it's it's 3 nothing going into the four-minute you know, minute mark. And then all of a sudden Roberto, Dominic Roberto touchdown, Wayne Anderson Jr. touchdown. And then right before the half, you're thinking, okay, Mercer was able to get on the board and at least make it 17-7. And then they made it 17-14, but then from there it was firm in the rest of the way. Uh, but 
the first half, I thought there was missed opportunities by Mercer to make plays. Furman's defense, you know, it's one of those things where they've got playmakers and they can make a lot of plays. I don't know that they wow you uh, defensively, but, man, they are solid. I mean, they very rarely uh, give up a lot of chunk plays, a lot of big penalties. I mean, they just they make you work down the field, and eventually they bow their uh, necks up, make a stop, and they're very opportunistic. If the ball's in the air and it is not on target, they can ball hawk with the best of them uh, and certainly do a nice job of uh, winning the turnover battle. Like I said, I think the game kind of flipped a little bit on what was a blocked punt that and I'd have to go back and kind of look at it. It was kind of an odd call. I'm not saying it wasn't a penalty. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, I, you know, it's one of those things where you see a block punt and then there's like a, I think it's like a defensive hold or something. And so I don't know if, like, the defensive lineman, like, grabbed the guy so the guy shooting through can get it or if it was a hold, like, after the people released. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what the, 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 the penalty was on. Um, but give credit to Furman again. We thought this was going to tell us a lot about both teams. We both felt like Furman was going to going to win this. I, I kind of felt like it was going to be a two-score, uh, you know, win. It was more than that. And so I kind of feel like right now I know where Mercer is, and I kind of feel like Furman is where I thought they were, one of the top two or three teams coming into the season. I, I think Furman is still the team to beat. Western Carolina is breathing down their necks, though. That team has been really, really strong. Um, let me see if I can so you're talking about in the second quarter there was the defensive hold at their own 30 on a block punt. That's a 10-yard penalty, automatic first down. Next play goes for 17 yards, and that's a real backbreaker. Furman blocked a field goal in the first quarter of that game too. Uh, so their special teams came up with a big play early. Mercer tried to answer, didn't deliver, and Furman took it down the field, and, and they went up 10 nothing uh, at that point in the second quarter. And that really did. Those were two big turning points in that football game early on. Uh, Furman, in my mind, is still the best team or the team to beat. I don't know if they're the best team, but they are the team to beat. And then Western Carolina after them. And then I think we have to revisit Chattanooga. I know defensively there's still some ups and downs, but I think they're cleaning some stuff up. They're starting to look better. There's too much talent on that defense for them to be as bad as they were down in Florence in week one. They are better than that. And I think they've started to get themselves right. Offensively, Artopius is the real deal, man. He's really, really good, and he can sling it. And their offense is built for him to sling it. I think their offensive line is starting to gel a little bit better. Uh, And... They didn't run the ball for a super high average against uh, Sanford, but when they needed to move the football in a short yardage situation, they got it done. Alim Ford, not a huge rushing day in terms of yards or efficiency, but just when they needed him to do something, he did it. He got it done, and I think the run game is going to start to come around for them. I'm very curious to see how well they can run the ball on Wofford, a team that has been pretty capable against the run for much of the year, even though, again, they're 0-4. They're not giving up huge point totals. Teams aren't just running rampant all over them except for Pitt after they got tired. 
I am curious to see Chattanooga's run game. I think this is a good barometer for what they're going to do as the schedule starts to ramp up because two weeks from now is Western Carolina, and Western is really good up front on both sides. And that's why I think Western might end up being – I think Western has a legitimate shot to win the SOCON. I don't remember the last time they did that. It's been a while. But Western is is a serious SOCON title contender. Des Reed is getting every look he wants behind that offensive line. That line is just mauling people. And he's been explosive. It's given him all kinds of space to work. They've put him in some good counter-run situations where he's been able to really put his foot in the ground and go. Uh, their receivers, led by Sincere Lee, are just phenomenal. And defensively, I think they are a little bit – they still take some risks. They still get burned sometimes. But overall, they are a smarter, more sound defensive unit. They're a little bit better in coverage. They're a lot better getting at the quarterback. This, this, in my mind, is the team to that, that has the ability, if there is a team that can beat Furman at their place this season, and well, actually Western is Western has Furman at home. So going into we, going into the place of, of Cullowee, I think it's going to be a really challenging game for the Paladins because Western Carolina has another one to get fired up for, and they, they didn't just get fired up for – Samford and then take their foot off the gas the following week. They kept their foot on the gas through Charleston Southern. They're going to steamroll the Citadel in Charleston this weekend. Uh, we'll see what happens at Chattanooga in two weeks. But I think this is a team that has a real shot to win the Southern Conference. And by the end of it all, we might look at this and say Western was the best team this year. Well, I think one of the, the big things that jumped out to me, one obviously was the offensive line. We talked about it a little bit just at Samford. Uh, and what's amazing is there are some things, and I'm the kind of person that's like, I think this is what I'm seeing, but I need a bigger sample size to see it. I'm actually, I vote in the top 25 of the FCS Fans Nation poll, and I don't have Eastern Washington in my top 25 yet, and people were giving me guff about it. Uh, but I just don't totally feel comfortable with them yet. I don't know what it is I'm not seeing. I think I see a good team, but I need to be sure that I'm seeing a good team before I do something with them, I thought Western Carolina's offensive line was the best unit in the SOCON after I watched them play against Arkansas because they kept Cole Gonzalez clean while the game was still even remotely in the balance. I needed to see one more. And once I saw them just roll up Sanford's front, I said, that's it. This is the best unit. This is the best five. Um, their offensive line coach, uh, who is it? Is it Darvo? Um, Davro, I, he's he's great. Uh, he's done a phenomenal job with that unit. They are the best five up front in the Southern Conference, and they are going to be really, really tough to stop in the run game this year. Well, besides sincerely, the new receiver, A.J. Colombo, is another guy. That Breakout has, player oh for them gosh. in a big way this year. He's made some big catches. I mean, just Jeremy Darbo is the offensive line coach, by the way. You're looking at three catches, 95 yards, two scores. He also had a score against Sanford earlier this year. So, And Cole Gonzalez was clinical against uh, yep. the Buccaneers, 14 of 16 for 299 and five scores. Yep. And then a couple of backups came in. He was three for four with a touchdown as well because, as we know, old uh, Kerwin Bell ain't going to call them dogs. All 77 they threw on the board against uh, Charleston Southern. It really wasn't uh, – it kind of escalated 
guess throughout they've scored 14 points. Actually, they scored 21 points in three quarters. Mm-hmm. In the third quarter, I don't know what would happen to them. They only scored 14. So i got to talk to them about that in the third quarter. Maybe uh, Charleston Southern just uh, took Well, I mean, when you, think of, when you look at the numbers, Des Reed only ran the ball 13 times. For so ridiculous. Like, for 111 yards and two scores. Uh, Cole Gonzalez only threw the ball 16 times for 299 yards and five touchdowns. I mean, your your go-to players only had what 29 plays between them, and you still put up, you still hung a speed limit on somebody. Yeah, I'm, I'm still. I don't think Western's won a Southern Conference outright championship ever. Maybe not. So uh, they're still got that on. ETSU had either since 2021. So, you know, and, and this is one of those deals where the last like four or five Southern Conference champions, right? There's a little symmetry we're going to talk about Thursday between what ETSU did in 2021 and the run to the quarterfinals to Fargo and what Sanford did in 2022. And then fast forward one year, how each team has kind of struggled coming off those uh, spectacular seasons, right? So we'll, we'll talk about Western Carolina's only conference championship ever was in 1949 in the North State Conference under Tom Young. They went 8-3, and three, and they lost in the 1949 Smoky Mountain Bowl to West Liberty State, which still exists under the same name. It's, a, it's now in the Mountain East. It's a DT school. How about that? I was pretty sure they had not won they a have never won, And they have never won a share of a Southern Conference championship. I knew they not won it outright. I wasn't sure. I wasn't going to go on record early saying uh, a share. I don't want the, the two Western fans to get mad at me that uh, may listen to this. So, so cautious in that. And then the last game, obviously, we need to talk about is Chattanooga and Sanford. And uh, tougher like, well, here, let, let me yada yada the other one. Uh, Citadel's not good. Uh, no. South Carolina State rolled up 556 yards. Citadel, 202 uh, only. Cooper scored late, and that's about all I got for Citadel. They ran for 54 yards on 24 carries. Very un-Citadel-like. Uh, this team's got to uh, – Maurice has got to rebuild it from the ground up, I think. Yeah. I, I, all right. So I, he, He's honest about it. No. He, he's he honest is, about he it. He knows. Like, he's not trying to spin it or sugarcoat it or rah-rah it. Yeah. Some teams have not adjusted to trying to switch the offense. Um, for an example, folks that uh, know I pull for Army, watch all the Army games, and have uh, watched some Army, and be like, hey, this is, this is kind of fun to watch because it looks like the, like the 1980s Air Force, uh, you know, kind of the sets they run, the triple option out of it. Uh, Old flex bone, throw, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, definitely a couple sidecars, you know, a shotgun, and, you know, they've got a big, tall receiver that they, they run down the field and shotgun down the field, which is not very Army-like either. But it's a little bit like the – the old Air Force, where they would mix in some shotgun and some, some passing and some uh, triple option out of that. Uh, uh, Air Force has kind of evolved since then to get away from it. Well, I, I think bringing Maurice Straten in is the adjustment, right? That's the change that you make to try to adapt your, your offensive identity for these new rules of cut blocking. The true triple as we've known it, as it's been known for 100-plus years, is it's gone. It's not coming back. I think the NCAA should reverse the cut blocking rule because um, I, I don't really think it's like it's, it's not the guys that you're, you're trying to penalize. I think there already are penalties on the books for you to, to flag that and to make the game.
safer without neutralizing something that makes college football great, which is the diversity of offensive identities that you watch in a given week. And the Citadel is, in the meantime, is going to have to adapt. Like the, the rules are what they are. The Citadel is adapting. Hiring Maurice Drayton is that adaptation, and he's going to need, and he probably needs two or three years just to get guys in there to try to rebuild that roster in a way that's going to be conducive to offensive success in a new era of college football. And it's just yeah, and how my, it's got to be. My problem with it is it, it, I don't think it was the, the academies and the few schools oh, it that wasn't. run the option that was causing the injuries and issues because they're taught, instead of really a cup block, it's more of a, lack of a better term, but stop, drop, and roll. Like, like they basically <laughs> get in front of them. Yeah. And they kind of roll at them. So the whole point of their blocking scheme is for the defender to have to put his hands down or his eyes down. And by the time he's worried about, oh, my gosh, he's going into my legs, they're by him without really cutting them down. Right. And I think that's what the misconception is when people look at that. That's not really how they're going. They're not running out there and diving at knees and thighs. They're just kind of getting on the ground or just enough to make you look or put, literally put your hands down so when somebody runs by you in that brief instant, you cannot grab them. And uh, when you get a chance to talk to uh, Coach Taylor Thursday, you got to ask him about uh, kind of the cup blocking and the misconception. I'm sure Billy would be like, oh, I'm glad they're not doing it anymore because it makes it a little easier for him. But in reality, those guys weren't causing the problems and the injuries. No, I completely agree. And so I completely you could take that out. down the field where a guy's thinking, oh my goodness, I can just cut this guy, and they're cutting him from the side or from behind, which is a penalty to begin with, so now they're just trying to take it completely out, but it's still happening. There's still cut blocks down the field that are being flagged. It just, uh, it did more harm, I think, for college football than what they were trying to do, and the Citadel's one of those teams that's got to try to figure it out. Agreed. Now, moving on to what was the sort of the game of the week, and I don't really care if Eagles uh, or whatever that grocery store pays for from the Southern Conference that it was. The game was Chattanooga and Sanford. And Chat, first opening drive, goes down the field, man-to-man coverage. Artopius gets out uh, out of the pocket, rolls, and nobody goes with the receiver on the scramble drill. Long touchdown pass. Then a ping-pong ball uh, bounces around, finally caught 11 seconds later. It's an interception <laughs> return for a touchdown. And boom, it's 14 nothing Chattanooga with a statement. By the way, second largest crowd at uh, Seinberg Stadium at Bobby Bowden Field. The largest crowd, uh, surpassed by a little over 1,000 people, was a guy by the name of Steve McNair back in 94, now Court State King. Oh, I, I heard he was pretty good, yeah. Slightly. Uh, so uh, it was 14 nothing, and, you know, then Sanford got – it kind of ping-ponged a little bit. Sanford got a field goal, then it was uh, Geno Appleberry capped off a drive uh, after a fumble, then it was Sanford Ty King. But it got to 40-24, and Sanford got down the field, got the red zone, and a turnover on downs. But they could have, with about nine minutes ago, made that a one-score game and very interesting. And then they did it again, and Cam Brown picked it off and took it to the house. Yeah, and, yards. And, and, and talk about that for a second. That's, to tell you how bad Sanford is kind of out of whack right now, they ran a bubble screen. So just to, if you will, imagine, as I try to give you the middle picture, there's two outside receivers and the one inside slot receiver. An inside slot is running the bubble, so he just takes a couple of steps, kind of backwards, and then loops forward. Cam Brown cuts in front of the outside receiver who 
lets him go, mm-hmm. and on a dead sprint catches the pass and goes. Why? And I've looked at it. I've rewound it probably ten times. The the, the furthest outside receiver misses the block. The inside receiver blocks the linebacker coming in. So I don't know because they use hand signals. The outside receiver didn't get the play. Just doesn't like Chandler Smith I, or, or, or Hires for not throwing him the ball. I don't know. But he actually kind of stops when Cam cuts in front of him, and then he keeps running by him. I, it's the craziest this thing is, I've This seen. has been an issue for them. This happened against Western Carolina, and it led to a huge hit. I think it was on Chandler Smith. A guy just flat missed a block on the cornerback streaking in on a pass in the flat. And this time Brown jumps a route and takes it to the house. Sometimes it's going to end up in a negative play. Sometimes it's going to end up in your own end zone. But Sanford's wide receivers have got to improve their blocking. I think that whole team in general needs to improve blocking on offense. Their offensive line has not dazzled me. Um, Hires has been running for his life. He took some pretty big hits. I think he took some big hits again against Chattanooga. He took. He was taking hits against Shorter. Okay? Like, if you're giving up big hits against the Division II team in your opener that's supposed to be an easy-peasy tune-up game, you've got some issues that you need to work out. And I don't know if it's – sliding protections, if it's on hires, if it's on the offensive line not communicating, if it's on somebody, uh, you know, just game week practice not getting it done, or if it's guys just, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Sanford, need, Sanford last year looked like they wanted it. And this year, for whatever reason, they are not as locked in as they were. And every single – last year on defense, when they changed defensive coordinators, they went to the portal, they recruited the portal aggressively. aggressively. We had heard that Samford was basically all in on the portal recruiting this past offseason. Like it wasn't really – you know, if there was a high school kid that just really stood out, they might take them. But for the most part, they wanted to hit the transfer portal, especially on defense again this season like they did last year. And last year, every guy they got was a home run. Every single player was a stud at their spot. And what we have seen is that going into the transfer portal that way is a bit of a whatever term you want to use. Is it a dice throw? Is it a a lottery ticket? It can be a little bit of a a risk. There There is an assessed risk in doing that that sometimes... The guys that you get are not always going to be the caliber of the guys that you just got. And Sanford, I think, is on the wrong side of that now, the way they were very much on the right side of it last year. So now the question becomes for Sanford, with those transfers coming in, and the season's clearly not gone well, they're going to have to try to win out to get any type of playoff or maybe a miracle share of something, depending on how the rest of the league goes those guys that transferred in that maybe didn't care about the name on the front of the jersey, how do they play? Are they playing for themselves? Are they rallying? I think this weekend will tell you a lot, you know, about Sanford. If they um, are kind of battling to salvage the rest of the year, or if a few of those guys have already kind of figured out, like, I don't know if six wins, uh, you know, in the Southern Conference, depending on how Furman, Western, and Chattanooga finish up is going to get us in. And so we're playing for nothing. So, I got a lot of speculation on that Thursday, but I'm very curious because I've heard the same thing. Like, they just pulled people off the road and said, hey, we're not doing high school kids. We get a portal. Kind of worked out last year. And they got a lot of guys to make plays. Um, they've struggled a lot with the RPOs um, yeah. 
watching Western Watson chat, and it wasn't necessarily giving up big kind of chunk plays, but they were just you know, giving up eight, ten yards, you know, at a clip for Chattanooga. Um, defensively, again, they gave up a lot of yards. I, I know they had two INTs uh, returned for a touchdown, but yeah, it's interesting to see how much the line has struggled for Sanford on the offensive end, and then flipping it to. Chattanooga, Artopius has been like the gunslinger they've not had apparently for a while since maybe Nick Tiano. But offensively, I mean, you're looking at Lib Ford's numbers, and they're just not very Ford like. 18 carries, 53 yards, averaging under three yards a carry. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, 106 yards on the ground, period. Gino Appleberry was able to uh, rip up a, uh, rip off a couple of runs and a touchdown. I mean, Lib Ford found the end zone a couple times, but I mean, this is a situation where Artopius kind of thrown. About three or four balls every game where I'm like, well, he's gotten away with it. And he's kind of floated some yep. things, and some guys have missed interceptions. Like I got that show Keith Kennesaw State one. There was one in Sanford, same thing. I was like, I cannot believe the defense got him picking off. At some point, I think those are going to be interceptions that work against uh, our Tubbies, or it's just going to be his year. And it's one or the other. Sometimes, right, you'd rather be lucky than good. But uh, I'm going to be curious to see if UTC and Chattanooga can get that run game going at some point. Because Artopius, who had 21 of 26 for 323, the touchdown's hard to argue with. Right. You know? uh, but I, I still got some questions on the run game for Chattanooga for, and their defense. I, you know, I, again, they gave up a lot of yards. Yes, they scored two touchdowns. They still gave up a ton of yards. And then on Sanford's side, you know, the defense has given a lot of, uh, a lot of plays. They haven't really got anybody off the field on third down. Yep. They're next to last in the league as far as opponents third down conversions and then the other part is just Michael Hires is, is you're right he's getting hit a lot he's having to scramble a lot he's not been able to hold and, and let some things develop some of the quick games there but they're not able to press the ball down the field give me your top four SOCON teams in order four weeks in who are the top four teams in this conference right now top four teams. doesn't have to reflect record just in terms of what you've seen okay I'm gonna go Western Carolina Those are the easy ones. And then four, yeah, four, and then four. So you go Sanford, you go Mercer. At least Mercer has a division one win over Western Carolina. Okay. And that's not a staunch good thing. So you look at that top four. I think we're looking at a two-bid league again. Because Sanford and, or no, I'm sorry, Furman and Western and Chat are all going to chop each other up. You just know it's coming. Nobody's going to keep their nose clean through all of this. And then that's going to end up in a situation where Chattanooga has the North Alabama laws held against them. And that either impacts somebody else that they beat or it impacts them directly and somebody gets left out. I think this is a two-bid playoff league once again. Now, a lot of the Southeast is not very good this year. The Southland is bad. I am bad. Bad. Nichols is not that great. We'll get a better sense of them. They played two FBS teams. We'll get a better sense of them this week at McNeese. But um, Southeastern's not good. Incarnate Word has been streaky. Uh, that conference is struggling. The, the UAC, who do you like there? Austin P. Eastern Kentucky, maybe. They won a wild one against SEMO after losing a wild one against Western. UT Martin in the in the OVC Big South, Javi. 
Central Arkansas? Eh. I, I can't. I'm not. I'm not ready to plant a flag on any of these teams, but I, I still think that somehow we end up with two when it's another situation where we probably should end up with three. All right, let me ask you this: What if uh, just spitballing somebody went undefeated? Out of the top three, definitely. Probably Western. All right, so Western goes 8-0. Could Furman or Chad. Chad, I don't think can look so SoCon Boston because of North Alabama. Could Furman get in? If Chad goes 7-1 and one and Furman goes 6-2 and two with a win against Tennessee Tech and a win against Kennesaw State, would they have enough wins to get in? They'd be 8-3 and three with an FBS loss. Yes, they might could. That's probably the only way, barring ETSU going 8-0. No. Because Chattanooga – I mean, we're gonna we're gonna find out we're gonna find out how how good Chattanooga is, uh, and we're gonna know fairly quickly, I think, what their playoff fate is because the last two weeks of their schedule are the open week and at Alabama. So their season is gonna be over two weeks early, or they're gonna have to ride out two weeks waiting for the playoff selection process. But we're gonna know more or less immediately, and they're already two, they've already got two wins in the bank, uh, and I think they'll bank another one this coming weekend down in Spartanburg, but we'll see, uh, and I'm not above something preposterous or ridiculous happening to keep a team out, but given history and given recent history, if it was going to happen to somebody, it probably happened to Chattanooga. It may have already happened with the North Alabama loss. We'll see. Ready, ready to do some uh, – let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about – speaking of Chattanooga. The best games of the week, or at least the ones these two dorks want to watch. Nerd! It's the pick six. You pick that up all by yourself? Ah, the pick six. I have a protest before we get going. Yeah, this, this, is, uh, this is reviews being under uh, how, protest. How do, how, do, how do you think you did? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go have a peek, shall we? 50-yard line was Chattanooga at Samford. But I'm never going to pick Chattanooga, so it doesn't matter. No. Yes. No. You're no. never going to pick Chattanooga. No, I, I, I will take every loss uh, picking against them no matter what. Yes. Chattanooga won that game 47-24. Sandoz did not pick them. I did. 40-yard line was number 11, New Hampshire at Delaware. You did, and I took New Hampshire, and I will wear that one because it was a great football game. Gotcha. Boom. Uh, 29-25, Delaware won it. Then, number 21, Mercer at number 8, Furman. We both picked the Paladins, and the Paladins won that game yep. decisively, 38-14. 30-yard line. Under protest. I'm sorry, a 20-yard line. Uh, number 3, Montana State, and number 10, Weber State. You, uh, I double-clutched it, and you, you, and you went put, with the Bobcats. You, you, you had put on paper, which I think uh, I have to check the rules here, that once it's on paper, there's no, there's no take-backs. And then I had talked you into uh, Montana State secretly. I don't think I meant to, uh, to a 40-point. So that's my protest. Can I, can I put off, it to the committee. Can put I offer committee. you this, this fresh, finely chilled bottle of copium? Just, uh, just uh, you know, I don't know what that means. But uh, if you would uh, put just take it to the committee and let me know what they say next week. Cope and seed. I picked the Bobcats. Sandoz picked the Wildcats. Uh, Montana State won that game 40 to nothing. Ouch. Uh, then at the 20, at the 10-yard line, it was number four, Sacramento State, at number seven, Idaho. The Vandals only got about 9,500 for this game. Kippy Dome, step it up. Let's go. Come on. That, that, that place holds more than that. 
Uh, 36-27, though. It was a good football game. Uh, it was a great football game. Idaho won it. They should have another good one this week against Eastern Washington. And FBS number six, oh, Ohio State at number oh, nine, Notre Dame. What a good you game, picked though. the Irish, but ETSU Buckeye did not steer me wrong. Ohio State in a grown man football game, it has to be said, because neither team just seemed to be super confident throwing the ball for long stretches. They, it was about the trenches, and at the end, Ohio State won it because they were better in the trenches at the critical moment. Or, or Notre Dame didn't have enough guys on the field. One of the two. Maybe a little of both. Okay. A little of column A, a little of column B. Uh, I get the win, and you don't. Point after, uh, UT Martin pulled away from North Alabama and won that game uh, by two scores, and Ole Miss uh, was Jay's pick over Alabama. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. I wanted to go prayer review, couldn't pull the trigger, prayer review actually won prayer the game. Prayer won the game, yeah. <laughs> so, It was a bad week for me. So I finished 5-1, and one. Santos finished 2-4 and four. after week 4, Santa Claus is 12-13, and 13, and the breakdown is 18-9. It's going to come back around to you, though. It's going to come from law of averages. Join a protest. Protest all you like. I'm not going to change I will. Anything. I will protest. I yeah, will protest. Yeah, I'm not going to change it. Take my ball. All right, Thursday we're going to talk a little uh, ETSU Sanford. Sanford doesn't have a radio, so I'm going to try to reach out. And, uh, just a couple guys handle their ESPN3. Kurt Bloom? Uh, Kurt didn't do the last game Kurt normally does. I'm going to reach out to Kurt first. CB, let's go. And if uh, we get Kurt, we'll get Kurt. If not, Blake Gardner's another guy that uh, does We're going to have to block out the whole podcast for CB, though. That guy will talk. Oh, yeah. We I love it. Control. I love CB. And he'll give you everything that Sanford didn't want to reveal. That's one thing I know about Kurt. <laughs> That's true. He does it's not true. hold back. You want to ask a question, he will give you an honest answer. Yes, he will. We try to give you honest answers as best we can on Jay and Keith. On the Buccaneer Sports Network. Oh, you gotta be kidding me!